you would grab your Bibles and open up to Galatians chapter 5, once you get back to your seats. Galatians 5, we'll pick up in verse 19 today. Uh, for those of you that don't know who I am, I'm Joel Barker. I'm one of the pastors here, and I get the opportunity and privilege to preach this morning. So Galatians 5, 19, we're continuing our series through Galatians, and this is where we left off. Um, do you guys know, everybody, I think the older people would definitely know, but just to make sure, the younger crowd, do you know what a hypocrite is? Anybody, anybody who's in eighth grade or younger want to answer what a hypocrite is? Anybody brave enough? Everybody's, all the eighth graders are like trying to duck right now behind the person in front of them. That's okay. Uh, A hypocrite is someone who pretends to be something that they're not. And they're usually pretending to be good or virtuous, and they're not good or they're not virtuous. They're just acting like it for whatever reason, to serve a purpose, to try to get some gain. They want somebody to think they're good and nice without actually being good or nice. And there were hypocrites in Paul's day, and... They claimed to be Christian, and they didn't walk in the Spirit. They may even talk about the Spirit. They may maybe talk about Christ. They may maybe talk about love, just like we sang about in the first song. They talk, the world talks about love. The world has no idea how to love. Think of all the wicked things that men try to push and say, this is loving, and it's not loving at all. It's evident from the works, from the fruit of their works, that they don't belong to Christ and they don't actually love. Hypocrites are nothing new back in Paul's day and back in Bloomington. And so Paul told the Galatians that they should walk and be led by the Spirit, as you heard from Esteban last week. They shouldn't gratify the flesh, the desires of the flesh, and we know what those sins are. But then just in case there's any confusion, and just so nobody can claim ignorance— not knowing what Paul's talking about when he says don't gratify the desires of the flesh. He's going to give us a list just to make sure that there's no wiggle room for you to try to get out of, I didn't know what he meant when he said don't gratify the desires of the flesh. And so now he says in verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we want to be people that walk in the Spirit and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. And We see this strong warning from your word this morning, and we want to put to death these things, and we want to take seriously the warning that you have before us. So help us do so this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. That is a serious warning. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, the list that he just said, walking, gratifying the desires of the flesh, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so naturally, you're prone to think and ask the question, well, I still do some of these things. I still sin, so does that mean I will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's the logical question. Is that what Paul's talking about? A Christian with any sense and any humility and can understand and see himself clearly at all just sees his constant failures. Martin Luther says, Every period of life has its own peculiar temptations. No one true believer whom the flesh does not again and again incite impatience, anger, pride. But it is one thing to be tempted by the flesh, and another thing to yield to the flesh, to do its bidding without fear or remorse, and to continue in sin. It's one thing to be tempted by the flesh, another thing to to yield by the flesh, and it's another thing to do its bidding without fear or remorse. And continue in sin. 
David committed adultery. Peter fell grievously multiple times that we know of. Think of denying Christ three times. Think of later denying the gospel like we read in Galatians. And Paul had to oppose him. The fact that two of the most godly men in the Bible sinned in terribly grievous ways actually should be a comfort to your soul. That even godly men sin in terrible ways. So when you sin in terrible ways and you have, you have no room to think that, well, I can't be close to Jesus or I can't be welcomed into God's kingdom. David committed adultery and then he had her husband killed to cover up his sin and you think that your lying or your drunkenness or your anger is too much for God to forgive and welcome you into his family. Paul, the person who's writing this, approved of stoning Christians and wanted to persecute them even further, was trying to be able to but somehow your sins are too much, and I don't think so. There is a difference between committing a sin in weakness and committing a sin in spite to God. The man who feels no remorse over his drunkenness is very different than the Christian who stumbled but confesses it and desires to change. It's a very different thing. It's a massive difference between sinning in weakness and sinning because you hate God and you do not care what he says and you want to do whatever you want. When a man's sins are brought to his attention, the godly man doesn't argue or excuse them and continue in them with no remorse. The, man, the godly man who's confronted with the sin says, yes, you're right, that needs to stop Versus the man who's ready to fight and say what he's doing is just fine. And even if it isn't fine, he doesn't care and he can do as he pleases. If a man sins and continues to fulfill desires of the flesh, even if he says he repents, but he doesn't care at all, that's usually a sign that that repentance was not sincere. If a man sins deliberately in spite of God and does not repent, the man is the one, that man is the one who will not inherit the kingdom of God. The child who steals from his dad, but then repents when he's caught or confesses it to his dad later, that's very different than the, the son who steals from his dad, but doesn't care, doesn't feel guilty when he's caught, just continues in his pride, and says he's going to continue to do it again. Those are very different sons to have. But even so, verse 22 should lead us to take bearing fruit and keeping with repentance more seriously. Some of you, when you sin, you confess it to God, but then you do nothing about it, and you just walk right back into the same door that you know you shouldn't go down. It's like you know that if you open this door, it's not going to go well. And so you do it, you feel bad, you confess it, but then it's like you could just lock the door. You could put yourself in a different situation. That doesn't mean that you didn't repent, okay? Hear me clearly. Just because you did a sin and then you did it again, just because you were angry and then you put yourself in the same situation, and we're angry again, doesn't mean that your first time you repented wasn't legitimate. That's not what I'm saying. You repent over many things multiple times in your life, okay? It just means you're being foolish, okay? Doesn't mean you're not repentant. If you know a situation is bad for you, and we're going to talk about this next time when we talk about self-control and the fruits of the Spirit. If you know a situation is bad for you and you keep putting yourself in that situation, it's either because you're just unwise and you're foolish, and you need help to set yourself up in a better way so you won't be tempted, or you're deliberately doing it because you want to keep your sin as your pet. No one is free of, from temptation. The temptation you feel likely is not the same temptation that the person next to you feels. Okay? Everybody has temptation. But we all don't have the same temptations. Is my water bottle back there? Griffin, can you write it? 
or one of you can run it up here. Thank you. Your temptations are not the same as the person. It's not the same as your wife. It's not the same as your kids. It's not the same as the person sitting across the aisle. Thank you so much. One person is tempted to drink. Another person is tempted toward carnal lust. One person is tempted to be greedy. One has outbursts of anger. What can easily happen is you belittle your sin, and then you magnify other sins and judge harshly as if they're more foolish. So you hear a Christian speak unwholesomely, or they let a word slip that they shouldn't have said. And you don't struggle with speech. That's just not one of your struggles. Cussing, cursing, anything that's never been a problem for you. But you hear somebody say that, that's a Christian. And you assume in your heart immediately that you are just way godlier than that man. I, I don't talk like that. No way, I just, I must be way godlier than that guy. And we do this very easily. It could be with our speech. It could be with any amount of sin. You, you see somebody do something that they shouldn't do. They sin in a certain way, and it's not a way that you're tempted. So you think, like, how could, I mean, you have to be really immature to do that sin. Even though they might look at you and your sins and be like, you have to be really immature to be doing that sin. That's a dumb way to think about sin. We're all tempted to sin, and it does no good in our hearts to push ourselves on a pedestal above our other brothers because they struggle with a temptation that we don't struggle with. We must all resist the flesh, and we must all learn to walk in the Spirit. No one is free from temptation, and everybody who belongs to Christ must crucify their flesh. And I I bring this up because few things are harder to change in your life later on than someone who is judgmental over the sins of others that they don't struggle with. And you've probably met some people like this. And you'll never be helpful in the church if this is you. You'll never be helpful in God's church if you can't have sympathy for your brothers and sisters who sin in ways that you don't sin. I can't plead with you enough, especially if you're younger, to learn this now because it's harder to learn this later. Can't plead with you enough to have grace and patience for those who sin in ways that you don't. It's often ironic because the people who have this issue, who judge harshly, who struggle with the idea that others struggle with sins that they don't struggle with, and they judge them, they're often the people that have the biggest logs in their eyes later in life. It's very hard to unlearn. Do not judge those harshly whose sins you find easy to overcome. Just because you're not tempted towards drunkenness or sexual immorality doesn't mean that your bitterness or your lovelessness isn't deeply offensive to God. And so you become useless in the church if you judge harshly those who struggle with temptations like that You're absolutely useless. You'll never end up helping those who struggle. You'll just perpetuate a culture and create a judgmental culture in the church. You won't help people confess their sin. Nobody's going to want to confess your sin because they'll feel it. They know that, oh, you talk like these people are idiots. I'm not going to confess my sin to you. I don't feel free to tell you about my sin. You're just going to think I'm dumb. You want to help people confess their sin. But you won't if you're like that. You'll become a plague to the church. Meanwhile, you think you're doing so well because you don't struggle in these other ways and your cup is so clean on the outside. Their sins are bad. Yours are just little minor things that you just need a little tweaking. And because... Their sins may be more obvious, and your sins may be less obvious to everybody around you. You just think that your sins aren't that big of a deal. And this is hard to unlearn. So learn to have sympathy with others. 
Others sin in ways that you don't sin. And it doesn't mean they don't love God. It doesn't mean they're not serious about following God. It just means that they have temptations that you don't have. And be gracious to them. Because other people look at you and they will judge you the same way because they'll think, well, that person is angry. That person's been married for how long and they still, their marriage is like that. It's just a foolish way to think about sin. Don't be useless to the church. Can you have sympathy that other Christians might be tempted by things that you're not? Can you have sympathy that other Christians might be tempted by witchcraft or sorcery like Paul's talking about? That seems probably weird to many of you. But obviously it was something that Paul was dealing with back then. That might seem silly to you. But can you have sympathy that somebody might struggle with that? Have some patience that it takes some men who didn't have fathers to teach them about godliness to grow up to be pure men. Have some sympathy that coming out of being a drunk or addicted to substance for decades doesn't magically happen in in one moment. And that they may struggle from time to time again. So many Christians try to turn the Christian life into just not sinning. Like, that's the goal. If you want to be a good Christian, you just don't sin. That is not the Christian life. If attaining perfection is your only goal, that is a terrible goal. You want to have a clean cup on the outside, but your heart is far from God. The greatest commandment is to love God. The greatest commandment is not just don't sin. Yes, if you love God, you will obey him. That is very clear. But you also actually love him. You actually find joy in him. It's not just that you don't sin. It's that you love God. And people very quickly can forget that. You can very quickly forget that you're a Christian because you've been justified by Christ, not because you've conquered your sin. And for those of you who struggle a lot with a lot of sin, like your life is just, just feels like it's always just a mess of sin, that should be very comforting to you this morning. You're justified because of Christ, not because you've conquered your sin. Your failures to walk in the Spirit do not qualif- disqualify you from being loved by God, so long as you have faith in Christ, just as your obedience doesn't qualify you to be loved by God without faith in Christ. Paul has multiple letters in the New Testament. You've read them. You know them. He calls Christians in these letters holy. He calls them beloved. And then he spends lots of time correcting their theology and their behavior. Understand what I'm saying? Paul calls the Ephesians, he calls them saints, he calls them faithful in Christ, that's how he opens his letter, Ephesians. And then later he's like, oh, also, could you please not lie? Could you not steal? And would you please stop uh, the sexual immorality and stop your unwholesome talk? But he called them saints. He calls the Corinthians those sanctified in Christ Jesus. And yet, right after he does that, he's starting to talk to them about the divisions that they're causing in the church. Guys, please stop causing divisions. Later on in chapter 5, he's talking about how foolish they're being with not dealing with sexual morality in the church. And I could go on, but the point is obvious. Your holiness is a gift from God. It is not a personal achievement that you've, see, that you've received. You don't boast in yourself. You boast in Christ. You can have lots of sins that you struggle with in weakness and be a saint and beloved by God. It's how we pastors and elders can say we are genuinely proud of you and your growth in grace. Genuinely, you have grown in incredible ways over the last decade. And it's wonderful. And then it's also how we can have the same in the same same sermon come and talk to you and rebuke you exhort you to follow after God 
Both those things can be true. Don't sit around and judge others that are weaker in faith and obedience. If they love God's word, if they come to the Lord's table and rejoice when his, rejoice that his body was broken and his blood was shed for him, if they have faith in God, they are so loved by God. How insulting to God to think that this kid is stupid or lame. If somebody thought wrongly of your children, would you not feel indignant? Somebody thought, well, that kid's an idiot, and I'm sure their parents don't love them like they should, don't love them very much. Then why would you do that with God's children? The old hymn that the ground is level at the foot of the cross is a good one because nobody is better than anybody else around you by the cross. The Christian brother or sister that you're bitter at, that sinned against you, they are loved by God. The family member whose faith is weak and sometimes posts suspect Facebook quotes from preachers that are suspect, they aren't loved by God any less than you. Your wife or your husband has lots of weaknesses, and yet God values them just as much as he loves you. So don't stand over in judgment. The Christian who does that is just really foolish. What in the world have you learned in your life that hasn't been taught to you? Have you learned anything that just hasn't been taught to you? All the good doctrine that you have, do you really have yourself to boast in? And like, I am pretty awesome, and I figured this out on my own. All the steps you've taken as a godly husband or wife, is that really on your own? Did you learn all those things by yourself? And yet, it's like we forget that everything that we've learned, all the wisdom that we have, is a gift from God that's been taught to us. And instead, we, we treat it like it's something that we've attained, and it's, it's because of our greatness that we have all this wisdom. It's just, it's never been the case. And so one of the dangers of growing in godly wisdom is that you can quickly turn haughty. And you need to be very careful about this in your heart. If you're often looking down about, on Christians because they don't have the wisdom that you have, it's not good. Not, the noticing that they're sinning is not the problem. The noticing that they lack wisdom, that's not the problem. The problem is the haughtiness. The problem is the judgmental attitude. Why don't instead you just teach them with patience? How long did it learn for you to become a good husband? And how much weakness do you still have? Did that happen overnight? Oh. How long did it take for you to actually learn good doctrine? Did that happen overnight? No. Then don't expect some family member who's not in a good church or doesn't go to church or only attends church a couple times a month to, like, really be super wise. Why would you expect that? Why don't you just be patient with them and teach them some stuff and help them get involved in a church? See, we have churches in town that we wouldn't recommend or advise people to go to. And if somebody asked us about attending X church, we have, there's plenty of churches that we, you know that we love that we're very thankful for and that we work with. And there's some that we wouldn't recommend. And I'm not even talking about heretical churches that forsake the gospel and are against substitutionary atonement or don't believe that Jesus is God. I'm not, I'm not even talking about those churches. Churches. I'm talking about churches that preach the gospel, but maybe there's like a theological weakness in their church that's significant enough that it would cause us to just say, uh, we think this goes against God's word and... We think this will have a significant impact 
and they're teaching, so we wouldn't recommend that if somebody asked us about it. And so maybe it's um, they have women, women pastors or women's elders. Listen, when you die, there isn't going to be a multiple choice test that says, does God's word allow women to be pastors? Yes or no? You click yes, you get into heaven, you say no, you're sent to hell. Now, 1 Timothy 2 is clear on this. At the same time, it's not that I'm saying it's not important. It doesn't mean that biblical sexuality and distinctives that God has for men and women aren't very important. They're extremely important in our day. It's going to affect how you teach on marriage. It's going to affect how you teach on manhood. It's going to affect how you teach on womanhood. It's going to affect how you teach about raising kids. It's going to affect how you teach about sexual sin and a host of other things. And so we may not recommend that church for that particular reason because it's a serious thing. But that doesn't mean that we should be proud and just think, well, I understand what the Bible says about 1 Timothy 2. I understand what God says about manhood and womanhood properly, and they don't, so they're dumb, and I'm not. That's not good. In Revelation 2, God is speaking to some of the churches, and he's telling them some of their positive things, and he's proud of them for some of the things that they're against, and then he tells them some things that he has against them. I got this out of order, sorry. Yeah, I'll get back to that in a second. I mentioned a few weeks ago when I was preaching that there's no denying that our church has grown in good doctrine, pure doctrine. Our beliefs are clearly more in line with Scripture than they were 10 years ago. We're more humble as a church. We're more humble of what to expect as a church. And yet my assessment is that there's a level of zeal for God and his word that is dulled over the years. And there was a joy in following Christ that was greater in many of our hearts that is at least duller now. I don't know if you remember that from a few weeks ago. I haven't been able to pinpoint exactly why that is. We've grown in purity of doctrine. We have a strong desire to obey God's word, and yet for some, for some reason, our joy at times seems lacking. Our love for God seems lacking. And so we can make a judgment about a church's unsound doctrine, and we can rightly call that out. But if we do so while our hearts are cold, then what's the value in that? See, your pure doctrine should lead to greater joy. Correct doctrine should lead to greater love of God. And yet, as we see in Scripture and we'll see in Revelation 2, and we know it from experience, oftentimes knowledge, instead of leading to greater joy and greater love, knowledge puffs people up. I'm going to talk about that here in a second, but Uh, I keep thinking this week about Luke 7 and the woman who's wiping Jesus' feet with ointment and tears, and she's wiping, using her hair to wash Jesus' feet. And they're in this Pharisee's house. And they almost, she almost surely does not know God's word as much as the Pharisee. Her sins were probably way more evident than the Pharisee. Her sins were probably much more shameful, too. But yet, she is the one who hears sweet words from Jesus. I was struggling to come up with examples of what this is like or how silly it is that our doctrine would get purer, that our love would get colder. Um, But I was thinking about a young man 
who gets married doesn't have a clue how to be a good husband. Um, he, they go on dates with his wife. He makes her laugh. He's not like just a terrible husband. They hang out. She feels loved at times, but, but he still has a lot of growing to do. He's never led his li- wife. He's lazy a bunch of the time. He doesn't protect her. He's never taught her anything about God. He doesn't take her to church. He golfs on Sunday. So some good things and then some things that would need to change if you wanted to honor God. And so then this man becomes a Christian. And he changes a lot about his life. And he's going to church now. He's taking his kids to church. He's working hard. He's making decisions for his family. And that's great. Praise God. But then let's say he does that. But his love for his wife just grows cold. She doesn't feel like she likes, that he likes spending time with her anymore. He doesn't really try to make her laugh anymore. He's not cute and playful with her like he used to be. So sure, on one hand, you're like, yeah, I'm glad you're not lazy. I'm glad you're not being a bum anymore. You're not playing video games 30 hours a week. But the point of him improving in those areas areas is so that he can love his wife even more. It's not so his love for his wife can decrease. It's like, yeah, you're, you're using your time better so that you can love people better. Not so that your heart can grow cold. Those things shouldn't be traded for one another. But often that's what's traded in the Christian life. And this is not that different than Revelation 2. I think, Griffin, you have that scripture. Jesus is talking. He says, I know your works. He's talking to the church in Ephesus. Know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. How you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Ephesus did good works. They toiled. They had patient endurance. They didn't put up with those that were evil. They had the wisdom to be able to test what certain men were teaching, and they were claiming to be apostles, and they found them to be false. They came to the right conclusion because they had the wisdom and the knowledge that they were false apostles. They were enduring patiently under pressure, and they weren't growing weary. And that's very true of you as a church. For two years, you've been enduring patiently as your pastor's been sick, not growing weary. And yet Jesus says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And I want to put that scripture before you and warn you, church, that the danger of the church of Ephesus is the danger of our church in Bloomington. Do not be okay with a cold love for Jesus. Do not be okay with a cold love for Jesus. Satan is happy to keep your love there. Satan will be happy for you to trade overcoming some temptation if it means that your love for Jesus will just die down. He'll be happy to see you repent of your laziness if it means that your love for God's word and spending time with Jesus and will just be replaced by you working hard. Or maybe your love for Jesus is cold because you're dealing with a sin that you just won't confess to anybody and it's a shackle that's unnecessarily holding you back. And we've talked about this hundreds of times through our series of Galatians about the freedom that you have in Christ. I've reminded you today that God does not love you more because you do not struggle with a certain sin. Hebrews talks about laying aside the sin that so easily entangles us and it's like you're caught in a net and you can't get out. But you can just lay it aside if you confess it. And so some of us, I think our joy has maybe doled over the years because we're like Ephesus. 
And maybe for some of you, it's because you just won't confess your sin, and I would encourage you to confess your sin to your brothers or sisters and have them pray for you and have somebody help you. Again, this isn't everybody in our church. Some of you are walking with the Lord, and you might be thinking, my love for Jesus is stronger than ever. And praise God, and it likely wasn't true for everybody in the church of Ephesus when Jesus was saying this in Revelation. But in general, our church's doctrine has grown purer. We love what God loves. We hate what God hates. And yet our joy in Christ and our love for Christ is dulled. And if this is you, I am pleading with you this morning to not be okay with this and to not let this continue. Confess it to your brothers and your sisters. Actually get on your knees by your bed and pray. If you're married, pray with your spouse. Tell your kids to pray for you if you have children. Ask your kids to pray that mommy or daddy would love Jesus more. The reason that you don't confess, or one of the reasons that you don't confess this sin, is because you think that there's something that's worthy of you and worthy to boast about in you. Admitting that your love for Jesus is weak doesn't make you look like a strong Christian, and so you just don't say it. Admitting that your love for God's word is not very high doesn't make you look like a strong, wise Christian, and you want to appear that way before other people, so you don't just say, I'm not reading my Bible. In fact, I don't even have the desire to read my Bible. You say, it's going all right, it could be better. But just say, I didn't read my Bible this week. No, that's not good. I don't even really have the desire. Would you pray for me that I would read my Bible? In fact, would you call me tomorrow and make sure I read my Bible? And would you pray that God would give me a desire to read his word? Do not be okay with a loveless heart towards God. Just be honest about your weakness. It doesn't make God love you any less or more But you cannot let your love for Jesus remain cold. You must take that seriously. God will help him if you ask him. But you need to be like the woman in Luke 7. Like I said, she brings this ointment. She's weeping at Jesus' feet. She's wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. She's kissing his feet. When's the last time you've just been before Jesus and wept over your sin? And just acknowledge that your sin is that bad. And you're so sorry that you cannot get this together. And would you please help me, God? This woman has so much love for Jesus, Messiah. She's kissing his feet. She's wiping his feet with her hair. She's weeping over her sins. Does your love for Jesus look like that at all? At all at times? Are you ever weeping before Christ for your sins? Why not? Do you think your sins are not that bad? Do you think her sins were just way worse? And there's never a time to cry out to God for your sins? Can you imagine this woman who's weeping there before Christ and she's hearing this parable about those who are forgiven much, love much, and she knows very well of her unworthiness and her sinfulness, and then Jesus stops there in front of everybody and he looks at her and he says, your sins are forgiven. That's how Christ looks at you if you'll humbly just confess your sins. He'll look at you the same way and he'll say, yes, I know your love has been cold for years, but your sins are forgiven. Yes, I know. You lied about that for a decade. Your sins are forgiven. Yes, I know that you struggle with this or that sin, I know you still get bitter, but I forgive you. Many of you have at times, you've known that. You've been before Christ. You've known deeply his love and his forgiveness, and yet somehow we lose that joy and that, of the, the love and forgiveness and our hearts just grow cold. And if that's you, then just go to God today and confess it to him. Confess your lovelessness. Confess that the joy that you used to have is is nowhere near where it is right now. 
that you don't feel that you need God's word and you don't treat it as more valuable than pure gold. And Jesus will meet you there and he will say, your sins are forgiven. I so badly want for our church's love to grow. But it has to start with confession of sin. Otherwise, we're just pretending that we're somehow great and God loves us because we're great. Don't live as a loveless, joyless Christian. It's not how it was meant to be. It's not how the Christian life meant to be. Paul isn't listing out these sins. So Paul's listing these sins. I'm going to go through them quickly. Paul isn't listing out these sins so that you just stop doing them. That is not the point. The point is not, here's a list of sins, just don't do them, and we're good. He lists the sins out there to make it evident and clear that these are the things that Christians walking in the Spirit don't do. Okay? They don't do these things. They may struggle with them, be weak at times, but this is not the pattern of Christian. He's already told you, as Espan talked about, to not gratify the desires of the flesh, and you know, that, you know what walking in the flesh means. But the point is that you don't gratify the sins, desires of the flesh so that you walk in the Spirit. So that the fruits of the Spirit are what are evident in your life. Okay? Because they're opposed, as Esteban was talking about last week. You can't do both. You can't have the fruits of the Spirit be evident in your life if you're walking as a person who just keeps continuing walking and gratifying the desires of the flesh. If you're always angry, you're not going to be a loving person. If you're constantly giving in to sexual morality, you're not going to be a joyful Christian. The point is, here's the sins. Yes, don't do them. Instead, walk by the Spirit. Have this be part of your life. Let this be true of your life. Not just don't sin. Don't sin so that you can actually love God. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Let me quickly make mention of these sins. Sexual morality, impurity, and sensuality. These, I think, need no introduction. Um, they're obvious sins that must be fought against, and we're going to talk more about them uh, next when we talk about fruit, uh, uh, se- excuse me, self-control as one of the fruits of the Spirit. Um, the world will tell you that immoral men and women, that you can just have your secret lust and you can do whatever you want. And if it's secret, it's not a big deal. It's not affecting anybody. That's a lie. And it will destroy your marriage. It will injure your relationship with your children. It will cause damage. There is no secret sin. There's no secret sexual sin. It doesn't work like that. Idolatry and witchcraft or sorcery. The sense of idolatry here is it's similar to sorcery. It's superstitious living. It's worshiping a different God or worshiping, in God's, worshiping God in ways that are in conflict with how he prescribes. He mentions enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. Kids, do you know what enmity is? Children, you know what enmity is? Enmity is when you're hostile towards somebody or you're opposed to them. Maybe your sibling did something to you and for the rest of the day, you're, you're going to hold a grudge against them. It's enmity. And God says that much stop, okay? So don't sin against your brother or sister, even if they've sinned against you. How often do you cause strife in relationships? Strife is contention with somebody. Are you always arguing? Always arguing about something with someone? Always arguing with your parents? Kids, if you're always arguing with your parents, that's the fruit of the flesh, and that's not the fruit of the Spirit. Don't do that. What about jealousy? 
Christian, are you envious or, or jealous? When something good happens to your brother, does it bother you? Does it annoy you? It might sound weird to some of you. But is your first response for some, when you hear good news for somebody, is, is it joy for them or do you get jealous? This is hard because you, they might have something or get something that you would like and that you've been praying for and it's, it's to them and they might not even need it and God gives it to them and not you. But we'll talk about that more. Fits of anger. Do you yell when you don't get your way? It's not just a struggle of a five-year-old. Raising your voice in your home isn't necessarily a sin, but if you raise it in a fit of anger and you've lost all sense of self-control, that's not good. And it injures your relationships. And it happens a lot in this church family. If you're the person that raises your voice in your home, you're not the only man that does that with your family. And you should be honest about it in your small group. The men should know, hey, I lost my temper and I yelled at my kids. And God will forgive you. But it isn't something that you should just hide and not be trying to work on with help of others. Rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. I think that's for the sake of time, clear enough. Drunkenness and orgies, giving yourself over to the pleasures of your body, altering your mind to the point where you're not in control and you're unable to have self-control. And that's not how God has designed you to work. And things like these, you know what the sins of the flesh are. This is an exhaustive list. Here's my big point this morning. I've already kind of led led into it. Yes, these actions need to stop in your life. Sexual immorality must stop. Your anger is not acceptable. You need to stop causing strife and division. Your drunkenness cannot continue. But the reason that these things are fought against is, again, it's not so you just don't sin. God's goal is not for these things to just happen so you don't sin and say, I've sinned, I've won, I've not sinned, I've won the game. The point is that you walk in the Spirit. But the flesh and the Spirit are opposed, so you can't be doing these things if you're going to be trying to do these things. Again, I go back to the husband example. Yes, God wants you to leave your, lead your wife. Yes, God wants men to work hard. Yes, God wants you to pr- provide and protect. But it does not mean that God is pleased if you're like, I'm going to church, I'm working 60 hours a week, I'm taking responsibility for my family, I have no love for my wife and kids. Yeah, I've stopped being lazy. I've stopped looking at inappropriate things on the internet. I've stopped yelling at my kids. I'm not getting drunk anymore. I have zero love for my wife and kids. It's not what God's after, and you shouldn't be okay with it. And yet, that's, that's how we act in the Christian life. We start growing in pure doctrine, and then we're just like, yeah, my love for God's just gone. My love for God's word is just, yeah, it was helpful back then. Now I've stopped these things. We'll talk next time about the fruits of the Spirit with love and joy. Yes, stop being angry so that you can love. Yes, stop being angry. So yes, stop doing the deeds of the flesh so that you can do the deeds of the Spirit, so that you can walk in the Spirit. Some of you have made progress, significant progress in putting away the deeds of the flesh, but Satan has duped you into thinking that that is enough and it's not. Do you have love and joy for God? Is it growing? Or are you like the husband who's put to death some things, but the fruits of the Spirit are really not evident in your life? And so my two takeaways as you leave today. Put away the deeds of the flesh. Stop them. Confess them. If you need help, Ask us for help. We're not surprised by any sin that you would bring to us. 
no matter how heinous you might think of it, no matter how big the consequences and what's going to need to change because you've now told us, we will walk with you, we will love you. Many of you know that, and you can testify to that. Confess it to God and to others. They need to be dealt with because you were meant to walk in the Spirit. Number two, if your joy is lacking, if your love for God is lacking, maybe what you once had for Jesus, you remember times of sitting before Jesus like the sinful woman. But for whatever reason, that's gone and you haven't felt close to Jesus like that in a long time. Would you please confess that to others and confess that to God and ask him to return the love that you once had just like Jesus called for the church in Ephesus to do. These two things will be good prep work for the next sermon. Lord willing, we'll come back and we'll talk about the fruits of the Spirit. But let's pray. Father, use my weak words to be helpful and to remind us of our love. Remind us of our forgiveness of our sins. Remind us of the gospel. Thank you for your warnings to take seriously our sin and that those who do those things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Help us put away the deeds of the flesh, but help us do them so that we can walk in the Spirit. These deeds of the flesh maybe ruled our lives once. Many of us used to love to gratify our desires of the flesh, even though we knew they were wrong. So thank you for saving us and for rescuing us from these things. We think about how our life used to be years ago for many of us, and you saved us from that pit. Father, our temptations are still there and we still struggle and we would need your help and we will. Help us to be Christians who put these things away but help us, be, help us put these things away because we want to be close to you, because we want to love you, because we want to be filled with the Spirit and led by the Spirit and walk in the Spirit. We want to have a deep love and joy and peace that comes from being with our God. Help us be honest and confess our lovelessness and our lack of joy. And would you be merciful answering these prayers and would you remind us that our sins are forgiven. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you, church, for being here. You are...